Section 12 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicola K. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 3, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 4, Part 3. 21. When they see themselves convicted on the clearest evidence of loosing and binding worthy and unworthy without distinction, they lay claim to power without knowledge, and although they dare not deny that knowledge is requisite for the proper use, they still affirm that the power itself has been given to bad administrators. This, however, is the power. Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Either the promise of Christ must be false, or those who are endued with this power bind and loose properly. There is no room for the evasion that the words of Christ are limited, according to the merits of him who is loosed or bound. We admit that none can be bound or loosed but those who are worthy of being bound or loosed. But the preachers of the gospel and the church have the word by which they can measure this worthiness. By this word, preachers of the gospel can promise forgiveness of sins to all who are in Christ by faith, and can declare a sentence of condemnation against all, and upon all who do not embrace Christ. In this word, the church declares that neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 Such it binds in sure fetters. By the same word it looses and consoles the penitent. But what kind of power is it which knows not what is to be bound or loosed? You cannot bind or loose without knowledge. Why then do they say that they absolve by authority given to them when absolution is uncertain? As regards us, this power is merely imaginary, if it cannot be used. Now, I hold either that there is no use, or one so uncertain as to be virtually no use at all. For when they confess that a good part of the priests do not use the keys duly, and that power without the legitimate use is ineffectual, who is to assure me that the one by whom I am loosed is a good dispenser of the keys? But if he is a bad one, what better has he given me than this nugatory dispensation? What is to be bound or loosed in you I know not, since I have not the proper use of the keys, but if you deserve it, I absolve you. As much might be done, I say, not by a leg, since they would scarcely listen to such a statement, but by the Turk or the devil. For it is just to say, I have not the word of God, the sure rule for loosing. But authority has been given me to absolve you, if you deserve it. We see, therefore, what their objective was when they defined, see section 16, the keys as authority to discern and power to execute, and said that knowledge is added as a counselor, and counsels the proper use. Their object was to reign libidinously and licentiously, without God and his word. 22. Should anyone object, first, that the lawful ministers of Christ will be no less perplexed in the discharge of their duty 
because the absolution which depends on faith will always be equivocal, and secondly, that sinners will receive no comfort at all, or cold comfort, because the minister who is not a fit judge of their faith is not certain of their absolution. We are prepared with an answer. They say that no sins are remitted by the priest, but such sins as he is cognizant of. Thus, according to them, remission depends on the judgment of the priest, and unless he accurately discriminate as to who are worthy of pardon, the whole procedure is null and void. In short, the power of which they speak is a jurisdiction annexed to examination, to which pardon and absolution are restricted. Here no firm footing can be found, nay, there is a profound abyss, because where confession is not complete, the hope of pardon also is defective. Next, the priest himself must necessarily remain in suspense, while he knows not whether the sinner gives a faithful enumeration of his sins. Lastly, such is the rudeness and ignorance of priests, that the greater part of them are in no respect fitter to perform this office than a cobbler to cultivate the fields, while almost all the others have a good reason to suspect their own fitness. Hence the perplexity and doubt as to the popish absolution, from their choosing to found it on the person of the priest, and not on his person only, but on his knowledge, so that he can only judge of what is laid before him investigated and ascertained. Now if any should ask at these good doctors whether the sinner is reconciled to God when some sins are remitted, I know not what answer they could give, unless that they should be forced to confess that whatever the priest pronounces with regard to the remission of sins which have been enumerated to him will be unavailing, so long as others are not exempted from condemnation. On the part of the penitent, again, it is hence obvious in what a state of pernicious anxiety his conscience will be held, because while he leans on what they call the discernment of the priest, he cannot come to any decision from the word of God. From all these absurdities the doctrine which we deliver is completely free, for absolution is conditional, allowing the sinner to trust that God is propitious to him, provided he sincerely seek expiation in the sacrifice of Christ, and accept of the grace offered to him. Thus he cannot err who, in the capacity of a herald, promulgates what has been dictated to him from the word of God. The sinner, again, can receive a clear and sure absolution when, in regard to embracing the grace of Christ, the simple condition annexed is in terms of the general rule of our Master himself, a rule impiously spurned by the papacy. According to your faith, be it unto you. Matthew chapter 9, verse 29. 23. The absurd jargon which they make of the doctrine of Scripture concerning the power of the keys I have promised to expose elsewhere. The proper place will be in treating of the government of the church. That's book 4, chapter 12. Meanwhile, let the reader remember how absurdly they rest to auricular and secret confession what was said by Christ partly of the preaching of the gospel and partly of excommunication. Wherefore, when they object that the power of loosing was given to the apostles, and that this power of priests exercised by remitting sins acknowledged to them, it is plain that the principle which they assume is false and frivolous. For the absolution which is subordinate to faith is nothing else than an evidence of pardon, 
derived from the free promise of the gospel, while the other absolution, which depends on the discipline of the church, has nothing to do with secret sins, but is more a matter of example for the purpose of removing the public offense given to the church. As to their diligence in searching up and down for passages by which they may prove that it is not sufficient to confess sins to God alone or to laymen, unless the priest take cognizance, it is vile and disgraceful. For when the ancient fathers advise sinners to disburden themselves to their pastor, we cannot understand them to refer to a recital which was not then in use. Then so unfair are Lombard and others like-minded that they seem intentionally to have devoted themselves to spurious books, that they might use them as a cloak to deceive the simple. They indeed acknowledge truly that as forgiveness always accompanies repentance, no obstacle properly remains after the individual is truly penitent, though he may not have actually confessed. And therefore that the priest does not so much remit sins as pronounce and declare that they are remitted. Though in the term declaring they insinuate a gross error, surrogating ceremony in place of doctrine, but in pretending that he who has an already obtained pardon before God is acquitted in the face of the church, they unseasonably apply to the special use of every individual that we have already said was designed for common discipline when the offense of a more heinous and notorious transgression was to be removed. Shortly after they pervert and destroy their previous moderation by adding that there is another mode of remission namely by the infliction of penalty and satisfaction, in which they arrogate to their priests the right of dividing what God has everywhere promised to us entire. While he simply requires repentance and faith, their division or exception is altogether blasphemous. For it is just as if the priest, assuming the office of tribune, were to interfere with God, and try to prevent him from admitting to his favor by his mere liberality any one who had not previously lain prostrate at the tribunitial bench and there been punished. 24. The whole comes to this. When they wish to make God the author of this fictitious confession, their vanity is proved as I have shown their falsehood in expounding the few passages which they cite. But while it is plain that the law was imposed by men, I say that it is both tyrannical and insulting to God, who, in binding consciences to his word, would have them free from human rule. Then, when confession is prescribed as necessary to obtain pardon, which God wished to be free, I say that the sacrilege is altogether intolerable, because nothing belongs more peculiarly to God than the forgiveness of sins, in which our salvation consists. I have, moreover, shown that this tyranny was introduced when the world was sunk in shameful barbarism. Besides, I have proved that the law is pestiferous, inasmuch as when the fear of God exists, it plunges men into despair, and when there is security soothing itself with vain flattery, it blunts it the more. Lastly, I have explained that all the mitigations which they employ have no other tendency than to entangle, obscure, and corrupt the pure doctrine, and cloak their iniquities with deceitful colors. 25. In repentance they assign the third place to satisfaction, 
all their absurd talk as to which can be refuted in one word. They say that it is not sufficient for the penitent to abstain from past sins and change his conduct for the better unless he satisfy God for what he has done, and that there are many helps by which we may redeem sins, such as tears, fastings, oblations, and offices of charity, that by them the Lord is to be propitiated, by them the debts due to divine justice are to be paid, by them our faults are to be compensated, by them pardon is to be deserved. For though in the riches of his mercy he has forgiven the guilt, he yet, as a just discipline, retains the penalty, and that this penalty must be bought off by satisfaction. The sum of the whole comes to this, that we indeed obtain pardon of our sins from the mercy of God, but still by the intervention of the merit of works, by which the evil of our sins is compensated and due satisfaction made to divine justice. To such false views I oppose the free forgiveness of sins, one of the doctrines most clearly taught in the scripture. First, what is forgiveness but a gift of mere liberality? A creditor is not said to forgive when he declares by granting a discharge that the money has been paid to him, but when, without any payment, through voluntary kindness, he expunges the debt. And why is the term gratis, or free, afterwards added, but to take away all idea of satisfaction? With what confidence, then, do they still set up their satisfactions, which are thus struck down as with a thunderbolt? What? When the Lord proclaims by Isaiah, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins, does he not plainly declare that the cause and foundation of forgiveness is to be sought from his goodness alone? Besides, when the whole of Scripture bears this testimony to Christ, that through his name the forgiveness of sins is to be obtained, Acts chapter 10, verse 43, does it not plainly exclude all other names? How then do they teach that it is obtained by the name of satisfaction? Let them not deny that they attribute this to satisfactions, though they bring them in as subsidiary aids. For when Scripture says, by the name of Christ, it means that we are to bring nothing, pretend nothing of our own, but lean entirely on the recommendation of Christ. Thus Paul, after declaring that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, immediately adds the reason and the method. For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. 26. But with their usual perverseness, they maintain that both the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation take place at once when we are received into the favor of God through Christ in baptism, that in lapses after baptism we must rise again by means of satisfactions, that the blood of Christ is of no avail unless insofar as it is dispensed by the keys of the church. I speak not of a matter as to which there can be any doubt, for this impious dogma is declared in the plainest terms in the writings not of one or two, but of the whole schoolmen. Their master, after acknowledging according to the doctrine of Peter that Christ bare our sins in his own body on the tree, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, immediately modifies the doctrine by introducing the exception 
that in baptism all the temporal penalties of sin are relaxed, but that after baptism they are lessened by means of repentance, the cross of Christ and our repentance thus cooperating together. St. John speaks very differently. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you, for his name's sake. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 12. He certainly is addressing believers, and while setting forth Christ as the propitiation for sins, shows them that there is no other satisfaction by which an offended God can be propitiated or appeased. He says not, God was once reconciled to you by Christ, now seek other methods, but he makes him a perpetual advocate who always, by his intercession, reinstates us in his fathered favor, a perpetual propitiation by which sins are expiated. For what was said by another John will ever hold true. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. John chapter 1 verse 29 He, I say, took them away, and no other. That is, since he alone is the Lamb of God, he alone is the offering for our sins. He alone is the expiation. He alone is satisfaction. For though the right and power of pardoning properly belongs to the Father, when he is distinguished from the Son, as has already been seen, Christ is here exhibited in another view, as transferring to himself the punishment due to us, and wiping away our guilt in the sight of God. Whence it follows that we could not be partakers of the expiation accomplished by Christ, were he not possessed of that honor of which those who try to appease God by their compensations seek to rob him. 27. Here it is necessary to keep two things in view, that the honor of Christ be preserved entire and unimpaired, and that the conscience, assured of the pardon of sins, may have peace with God. Isaiah says that the Father has laid on him the iniquity of us all, that with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. Peter, repeating the same thing, in other words, says that he bare our sins in his own body on the tree. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Paul's words are, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh being made a curse for us. Romans chapter 8 verse 3 and Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. In other words, the power and curse of sin was destroyed in his flesh when he was offered as a sacrifice, on which the whole weight of our sins was laid, with their curse and execration, with the fearful judgment of God and condemnation to death. Here there is no mention of the vain dogma that after the initial cleansing no man experiences the efficacy of Christ's passion in any other way than by means of satisfying penance. We are directed to the satisfaction of Christ alone for every fall. Now call to mind their pestilential dogma that the grace of God is effective only in the first forgiveness of sins, but if we afterwards fall, our works cooperate in obtaining the second pardon. If these things are so, do the properties above attributed to Christ remain entire? How immense the difference between the two propositions that our iniquities were laid upon Christ, 
that in his own person he might expiate them, and that they are expiated by our works, that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and that God is to be propitiated by works. Then, in regard to pacifying the conscience, what pacification will it be to be told that sins are redeemed by satisfactions? How will it be able to ascertain the measure of satisfaction? It will always doubt whether God is propitious, will always fluctuate, always tremble. Those who rest satisfied with petty satisfactions form too contemptible an estimate of the justice of God, and little consider the grievous heinousness of sin, as shall afterwards be shown. Even were we to grant that they can buy off some sins by due satisfaction, still what they will do while they are overwhelmed with so many sins that not even a hundred lives, though wholly devoted to the purpose, could suffice to satisfy for them. We may add that all the passages in which the forgiveness of sins is declared refer not only to catechumens, but to the regenerate children of God, to those who have long been nursed in the bosom of the church. That embassy which Paul so highly extols, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 is not directed to strangers, but to those who had been regenerated long before. Setting satisfactions altogether aside, he directs us to the cross of Christ. Thus, when he writes to the Colossians that Christ had made peace through the blood of his cross to reconcile all things unto himself, he does not restrict it to the moment at which we are received into the church, but extends it to our whole course. This is plain from the context, where he says that in him we have redemption by his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Colossians chapter 1 verse 14 It is needless to collect more passages, as they are ever occurring. 28. Here they take refuge in the absurd distinction that some sins are venial and others are mortal, that for the latter a weighty satisfaction is due, but that the former are purged by easier remedies, by the Lord's Prayer, the sprinkling of holy water, and the absolution of the Mass. Thus they insult and trifle with God, and yet, though they have the terms venial and mortal sin continually in their mouth, they have not yet been able to distinguish the one from the other, except by making impiety and impurity of heart to be venial sin. We, on the contrary, taught by the scripture standard of righteousness and unrighteousness, declare that the wages of sin is death, and that the soul that sinneth it shall die. Romans chapter 6 verse 23, Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20. The sins of believers are venial, not because they do not merit death, but because by the mercy of God there is now no condemnation to those which are in Christ Jesus their sin being not imputed, but effaced by pardon. I know how unjustly they calumniate this our doctrine, for they say it is the paradox of the Stoics, concerning the equality of sins. But we shall easily convict them out of their own mouths. I ask them whether, among those sins which they hold to be mortal, they acknowledge a greater and a less. If so, it cannot follow as a matter of course that all sins which are mortal are equal since Scripture declares that the wages of sin is death, that obedience to the law is the way to life, the transgression of it the way to death, they cannot evade this conclusion. 
in such a mass of sins, therefore, how will they find an end to their satisfactions? If the satisfaction for one sin requires one day, while preparing it they involve themselves in more sins, since no man, however righteous, passes one day without falling repeatedly. While they prepare themselves for their satisfactions, number, or rather numbers without number, will be added. Confidence and satisfaction being thus destroyed, what more would they have? How do they still dare to think of satisfying? 29. They endeavor indeed to disentangle themselves, but it is impossible. They pretend a distinction between penalty and guilt, holding that the guilt is forgiven by the mercy of God, but that though the guilt is remitted, the punishment which divine justice requires to be paid remains. Satisfactions then properly relate to the remission of the penalty. How ridiculous this levity! They now confess that the remission of guilt is gratuitous, and yet they are ever and anon telling as to merit it by prayers and tears and other preparations of every kind. Still, the whole doctrine of Scripture regarding the remission of sins is diametrically opposed to that distinction. But although I think I have already done more than enough to establish this, I will subjoin some other passages by which these slippery snakes will be so caught as to be afterwards unable to writhe even the tip of their tail. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 and 34. What this means we learn from another prophet when the Lord says, When the righteous turneth away from his righteousness, all his righteousness that he has done shall not be mentioned. Again, when the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness that he has committed, and does that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 24 and 27. When he declares that he will not remember righteousness, the meaning is that he will take no account of it to reward it. In the same way, not to remember sins is not to bring them to punishment. The same thing is denoted in other passages by casting them behind his back, blotting them out as a cloud, casting them into the depths of the sea, not imputing them, hiding them. By such forms of expression the Holy Spirit has explained his meaning, not obscurely, if we would lend a willing ear. Certainly, if God punishes sins, he imputes them. If he avenges, he remembers. If he brings them to judgment, he has not hid them. If he examines, he has not cast them behind his back. If he investigates, he has not blotted them out like a cloud. If he exposes them, he has not thrown them into the depths of the sea. In this way, Augustine clearly interprets, if God has covered sins, he willed not to advert to them. If he willed not to advert, he willed not to animadvert. If he willed not to animadvert, he willed not to punish. He willed not to take knowledge of them. He rather willed to pardon them. Why then did he say that sins were hid? Just that they might not be seen. What is meant by God seeing sins but punishing them? But let us hear from another prophetical passage on what terms the Lord forgives sins. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. 
Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 In Jeremiah again we read, In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for, and there shall be none, and the sins of Judah they shall not be found. For I will pardon them whom I reserve. Jeremiah chapter 50 verse 20 Would you briefly comprehend the meaning of these words? Consider what, on the contrary, is meant by these expressions, that transgression is sealed up in a bag, that the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, his sin is hid, that the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. Job chapter 14 verse 17, Hosea chapter 13 verse 12, Jeremiah chapter 22 verse 1. If they mean, as they certainly do, that vengeance will be recompensed, there can be no doubt that by the contrary passages the Lord declares that he renounces all thought of vengeance. Here I must entreat the reader not to listen to any glosses of mine, but only to give some deference to the word of God. End of section 12. A recording by Nicola Cave.